Welcome to the podcast. I'm Natalie, and we are the Art History Babes, or I am one of the Art History Babes. And today I'm joined by Isabel Kent, who is an art historian, and she has curated previously for the Wallace Collection where she worked, and she has studied 17th century Spanish art. That's what she was doing at the Wallace Collection, Mm -hmm. and she's just an awesome art historian, and we're excited to have her here. Yeah, hi, everyone. Hi. Hi, Natalie. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be on the Art History Babes, subbing in as a fellow babe. Mm -hmm. You're our honorary babe for the day, our London-based babe. Yeah. If everyone can't tell by her adorable accent. (laughs) Yeah, very, very British. I was just having scones and tea, which is not a joke. I was literally just having scones and tea. So I'm, I'm about, well, I don't know, maybe I'm as British as they come. I'm not quite sure. But I'm certainly, certainly in that role today. You're British enough for us. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, other interesting things about Isabel. She has a very fun and engaging Instagram account. You guys as art history lovers would be very interested. Lately, she's been doing these really fun puzzle series, if you want to talk about them at all, because they're very (laughs) visually fun. Obviously, they're timely with what's going on in the world. Puzzles have become very popular lately. And they're also educational, like the way that you've set up your stories so yeah please tell yeah so I've been making stories on my art history themed Instagram account which is just called Izzy Kent uh, Izzy underscore Kent and I usually do these stories all about museums that I'm visiting and kind of tracing different artworks and looking at them in a kind of fun and relaxed way but we're all staying at home right now so I was trying to find ways of bringing bring the art home so I've been doing these art history puzzles I did one that was kind of topical to a podcast you did because I I just did a puzzle of uh, The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. And I know you guys were talking about that on a podcast a few months ago. Oh, for sure. And I feel like he's going to come up today. So I'm sure we'll come back to him at some point. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I did another one of Bruegel uh, of the Tower of Babel, which is this huge painting, mm-hmm. huge epic painting that is in Vienna. And it was, yeah, it's really fun doing puzzles because you're kind of zooming in on the little details yeah. and focusing on all these details and looking at them. And then until finally you're able to step back and see the whole. So it gives you a different different kind of appreciation for the artworks. And I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person where the more that I'm looking at something and kind of focusing on it and giving it energy, especially if it's a representation of any living thing I end up naming it so if it's a painting (laughs) like I end up giving names and identities to all these different characters that are in my puzzle because I spend so much time with them Yeah, well, definitely in Hieronymus Bosch in the Garden of Earthly Delights, it's hard to look at all these yeah. all these revelers and having an amazing time, not social distancing at all. Oh um, no, breaking all the rules. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> just having having a, a massive party and and not thinking. I wonder, I wonder who they are. I wonder who this guy bent over with flowers coming out of his button. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these people sort of swimming and with massive birds and I don't know all that jazz. So it's so fun, egg yeah. people. I mean. It's got exactly, everything. exactly. <laughs> I'm actually uh, I'm doing a giveaway of that puzzle because so many people were messaging me saying, "Where did you buy this?" Or they've saw it online, but it's out of stock. And so yep. I just thought, you know, I'll 
give this away to someone I'll post it that's such a good idea so I've got this giveaway I don't know if your podcast is going to come out in time for your people to come and apply to be in that but I'll probably do another one because I don't need all these puzzles in my house it's just nice nice to share the art love it could be a fun series I know that uh, last time we spoke we were talking about this and in particular finding art history puzzles Mm. and people who are interested in them and stuff and Corey and I actually bought this this MC Escher puzzle oh Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I love Escher. Yeah. So there was a really great exhibition at the LA art show that we went to earlier this year in January, back when we went places. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> or maybe I think it might have been February this well, year. I remember that time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So long ago. <laughs> I mean, it was like a art fair. There were people like touching and rushing no. shoulders <laughs> and meeting, and it was crazy. Yeah. So they had a whole Escher exhibit and portion of the show and a lot of them were galleries of sales and whatnot but this was a little Mm. more like you know museum style exhibition but we had a really great time looking at all the Escher prints and it's obviously very nostalgic yeah I feel like growing up Escher made it into the classroom definitely well I remember I remember sort of pouring over Escher just as quite a young child in sort of maybe around 10 11 and thinking my gosh I'm never going to be able to draw like this because there was a time in my life when I was doing a lot of a lot of art and drawing and thinking how can anyone be this good oh for sure I remember having those exact thoughts the hands I was like no well (laughs) To give you some solace with this, what I did was I looked for the date and worked out how old Escher was when he did this drawing that I was kind of doting over. And he was in his 60s. And so that just sunk in and said, okay, I have some time, you know, I have some time to work up my mastery of drawing, which I have now not done, but maybe... You know, I have time until I'm 60. <laughs> you still have time. You still have so many yeah. years. Yeah. No, I feel like more often than not, I realize that as I get older, how many people started mm. later in life than I ever imagined. And people that I really admire for many different, yeah. you know, careers across the spectrum. Yeah. But it happens so often that people find success at different stages of life. And young is not always best. Mm. And in this day and age, we kind of have this cult of youth this love of everyone needs to do things when they're really young and be successful when they're really mm-hmm. young. And life takes you in so many different directions that it doesn't always work out that way. And, you know, people can find huge success later in life or can find, you know, contentment later. I'm getting quite philosophical now, maybe. No, it's okay. I'm with you. I think it's so true. And it happens a lot. And I think so many people that I do really feel a connection to and admire have had that particular path. Yeah. And I think sometimes if you do things too young or you try and rush into stages that you're not mentally or emotionally prepared for, things go awry. So, you know, I don't see I, I think there's a shift coming in people being a little more okay with age and yeah. the pendulum swinging in that direction a little more so well, I, I hope so because I think it's but yeah no I just wanted to bring it back to your puzzles because you had said you had the idea <laughs> of people writing in if they had art history puzzles and letting you know and you'd be sending them so you could do them and do a story yeah well that would be amazing because uh, I'm running out (laughs) of art history puzzles it happens fast and it happens pretty fast especially when you've got a bit of time on your hands and especially when you want to make make as many stories as you can about these so yeah it would be great if anyone has a puzzle they're not using and wants to pop them in the post to me I'd love to make stories about them and also I feel like that would mean that I get more of a breadth of puzzles because I'm yeah I'm more inclined to do kind of old masters and things like that whereas it would be really cool to get one that was 
ancient Egyptian or something like that. I told you I have a Taj Mahal for you, so I'll get your yeah. address at the end of this and I'll I'll send that your way. It's very small, so it would probably take you like one night, but <laughs> still, it's it's still fun. It's still a pretty puzzle. <laughs> okay, that sounds that would be great, and I'll uh, I'll I'll have to swat up on the Taj Mahal and and learn my stuff, yeah. and then I can make a cool story about that, all about love and there you go. love in the time of the Mughal emperor. There you go. Yeah. Shah Jahan. I think we have an episode on it. Okay. So you can well, start I'll, I'll, there. I'll listen to that. And, you know, when I was working at the Wallace, they have a dagger that was owned by Shah Jahan. And Ooh. so I learned a little bit about him through that. So we can tie it all in with your with your Taj Mahal puzzle. I think that would be really fun. Oh, yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah that's got to have some interesting history. Mm. All right. And then just to, you know, get around to our topic for <laughs> yeah. today, which... <laughs> is historic hospitals. So historically, healthcare professionals are heroes of epidemics and pandemics, which we are currently in the midst of as a world. And so we just wanted to bring you an episode that has some themes of sickness and healthcare professionals stepping up to the plate and of course some art for you all as well but we really just wanted to thank the healthcare professionals who are out there on the front lines right now working very hard for all of our safety and just say that we appreciate you guys and this is for you and we want to thank you yeah completely and i think that you know a lot of a lot of the focuses right now has been on on plague and it would be very easy to do you know, a podcast in the, about art in the time of plague, because there's so much art that was created then. But really to shift the focus and look at these historic hospital institutions and look at how throughout history people have looked after the sick and the poor and how art has really played a very central role in that. And the more I've been thinking about this, you know, since we were discussing the topic and the more I've been thinking about the parallels that there are, because our healthcare professionals, they, you know, work modern miracles and they work incredibly hard. But at this time, when it's a, a new illness, when there isn't the sort of the miracle medication that we've come to rely on, a lot of the great work that people are doing is palliative care. And if we go back in history, it's only recently in the past sort of hundred or so years when you've had really great medicines. And so historically, a lot of the interventions that people were doing were somewhat palliative were about charitable work and, you know, feeding people and clothing people and taking them out of areas that were making them sick. And so I think there there are some parallels there too. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's really important to bring up. And uh, yeah, especially with what we're all thinking about right now and what's going on. I, I personally find comfort in looking back yeah. <laughs> at history and remembering that we're not the first ones to experience this or, you know, learn to live through things like mm -hmm. this. So, yeah. And just with that, a little bit of a trigger warning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We will be talking about sort of sickness and you know, dead bodies in some cases. And these are some quite really intense works of art, mm -hmm. quite graphic works of art. And so, you know, if you're uncomfortable with that, just yeah, be aware. Exactly. Or if you're just not ready right now, whatever is going on, mm -hmm. we're not going to, you know, be overly crass or anything. So don't worry no. about that. We will be very sensitive to everything. But just content wise, it is graphic. So let's get back to Hospital de la Caridad. Is he? Yeah. 
Would you like to start us off? I would love to. The first hospital that I want to talk about is a Spanish hospital. And as Natalie mentioned, my specialism, my academic area of specialism is Spanish Baroque art. So it's not a surprise that I should talk about this, but this is also one of the most interesting and beautiful buildings. And also in terms of historic hospitals, it's really fascinating. So it's called the Hospital de la Caridad. It's the Hospital of Charity. And it is located, it's still running as a hospital, in fact, and it's located in Seville, in Spain, in the south of Spain, in the Andalusia region. And before we go into talking about the hospital, I just want to set the scene in Seville a little bit, because Seville, I, I, I know some of your listeners might have been to Seville. It's a really extraordinary city, and it was really the centre of the arts in the 17th century, a lot of the great Spanish artists come from Seville. So Velázquez comes from Seville, Zurbaran spent a lot of his working life there. Murillo, who we'll be talking about in relation to the Hospital de la Caridad, he spent pretty much his entire life there. And so it's really this flourishing of the arts. But perhaps more importantly, not everything is just about art. Seville was also this huge economic centre of Spain. It was the most important port. And Seville has a very long history of being an important port. It's located just inland along a very wide river called the Guadalcavir River. And so since the ancient Roman times, it's been a port and then through the Islamic period in Spain. But it really started booming after 1492. And what happened in 1492, Natalie, I know you'll know this, being as you're in, in, in the US right now. Yes, yeah, Columbus got on his boat and he sailed to what he thought was India, <laughs> what he claimed was India, because <laughs> mm. he apparently knew best. And he wrecked a lot of lives. <laughs> yeah, God, what a what a great guy. <laughs> and I, I get that I sound obnoxious as an American sitting here on American soil, you know, but I own the fact that my ancestors were really? Spanish, okay. you know, so they were <laughs> the problem. <laughs> I recognize that. Try and do better. <laughs> but yeah, so Columbus. Mm. That was a long-winded way of saying Columbus. Yeah, so Columbus, not not a great guy. No. Exactly. He's He's what happened in 1492. Interesting, whenever I bring up 1492, I always want to mention that other things happened in that year too. It wasn't just that Columbus sailed off. No, I think this is important, especially in 2020. (laughs) Well, probably the most cataclysmic thing immediately to happen from 1492 was what was called the Alhambra Laws, which is the monarchs Mm -hmm. of Spain cast out all of the Jews or forced them to convert. And so this huge population of Jews in Spain were, were cast out and also the Muslims that were still in Spain most of them had already been forced to convert but those who hadn't were so it was this really shitty year (laughs) it was a really rubbish year yeah bad things tend to come in groupings yeah but I think Seville as a a town was quite happy about it because it made them very rich because Ferdinand and Isabella the Catholic monarchs the kings Mm -hmm. of uh, king and queen of Spain at the time they gave Seville the sole right to be the, the main port for the new world so Twice a year, you'd have these huge convoys of ships coming back across the Atlantic, and all of them would have to dock first in Seville. And so these ships would have been carrying silver, tons and tons of silver, and they would have been carrying cloth and gold and all these different sorts of really precious and important objects. 
and I say new world because that's what it was you know called in this context it's obviously yes yeah exactly and so Seville naturally became incredibly wealthy and its population boomed it had a population that was twice the size of Rome at the time so if you think Rome is the head of the Catholic Church a really important city a city that people know a lot more about yeah. from this time and yet Seville was was twice that size those ports, man, you can't beat port cities. Just historically, if you learn anything, <laughs> just know that port cities, mm. there's always yeah. a lot going on in them. Yeah. I lived in Genoa for a little bit in oh, fantastic. Italy, and I feel like it's a very... I, f- I don't feel like a lot of people know about Genoa. Yeah, underappreciated. Yeah, underappreciated, underknown even. Like a lot of yeah. people just aren't really aware of it as a city. But I also think like they like it that way. Yeah, <laughs> I think they've probably they've probably kept it that way for a reason. But Genoa's Genoa's an incredible town. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I think they like it as a well kept yeah. secret. They don't like tourists yeah. as much as other cities seem to thrive on them. But anyway, I'm totally digressing. <laughs> port cities have great. a lot of money. And I don't I don't think it's bad to mention that like art goes hand in hand with money. So port city, money, booming economy. Of course. As it does today, it did in the past. And every great artist needs a patron, mm-hmm. needs a way of making money. And you know, patrons have to have some some spare cash lying about. So whether they're the church or the crown you know, they they have to have that part of it. (laughs) Right. So Seville became this really massive, really important city. And then all through from around 1500 to 1600 was really important Mm -hmm. and very wealthy. And during this time, the Hospital de la Caridad was founded. It was founded in the 1560s, in 1565, to be exact. And as I said, it's still active today. But its first kind of century of existence wasn't that great because it was set up as a confraternity. And a confraternity, unlike, say, a monastery, which is made up of monks who live there, a confraternity is made up of lay individuals. So individuals of the general public, not members of the clergy, and they form a kind of a brotherhood. And often these lay confraternities would have a kind of an identity, a thing that they did, you know. And for the Hospital de la Caridad, what the confraternity did together, their purpose, their reason for existing, was uh, the penitent act of burying the unburied dead, which is really not very appealing. (laughs) And so, yeah, and the unburied dead are people like people who've been executed, Mm -hmm. who no one wants to bury because, Mm -hmm. you know, they're criminals. It's people who commit suicide, which in the eyes of the Catholic Church was this really grave sin from the fact that Judas committed suicide on a, on a money belt and it was seen as a as meaning you, you were automatically mm-hmm. in hell and it would be people who died of a, a terrible sickness or who, who were too poor and didn't have any family so these these individuals aren't stigma exactly like any yeah any deceased with some stigma yeah and no one to bury yeah. them or people who you just didn't know who they were. You know, you're on a major port city. Someone's been chucked into the river, washes up. Who's who's this Who's this guy from, you know, he might be from Genoa. We have no idea, you know. Hey, in the Baroque, they still had John, what are they called? John Doe's and Jane Doe's? Yeah, 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 exactly. John Doe. Yeah. Is that what you guys call them? Yeah, we call, we call it that too. Okay, when, when cool. you get a name for a body. Exactly. I wonder what they, they called it, Juan... 
What would the oh, yeah. what would the Spanish name be? I don't know what the real Spanish name. I'm just thinking of John Doe in Spanish. Yeah, I have no idea what Doe in <laughs> Spanish is, but <laughs> Juan Diaz or something. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Let's go with that. So yeah, you had had those sorts of people. So so not a very appealing thing. And unsurprisingly, there weren't that many people who wanted to do it. But then in 1663, the Hospital de la Caridad got the leader that it had so long deserved, mm-hmm. let's say that, who yeah. was a man called Miguel Mañara. And Miguel Mañara, he came from a really wealthy mercantile family, new, new world wealth and money. And he cast off this wealth, like so many, like, you know, St. Francis and all this, mm-hmm. this classic idea of, uh, of Christian virtue. He cast off his wealth and he, he didn't join the clergy. Instead, he wanted to stay as a lay individual, but he became the head of the Hospital de la Caridad. And he must have been a really charismatic guy. He was very charismatic. He was very eloquent. And he really transformed this institution into something that everyone wanted to be a part of. And there are a bunch of things that that came up here because it was the right man at the right time. You know, Seville had had some really rough years. So from 1600 to 1650, 1660, it was in some serious economic decline. The river, the Guadalcavir, silted up. And so these large ships that had been crossing the Atlantic could no longer get up the river. So They lost all of that income that went to nearby Cadiz. There was also a major flood. Uh, Following flood, you often have disease, which they did have. They also had starvation um, following that. And then there were civil uprisings because if everyone's hungry, then you also get pretty angry. I know, I do. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. When I'm on holiday going around museums, my uh, my boyfriend always knows when I'm hangry and has to rush me, you know. Oh my god, it's imperative. Yeah. It's yeah. We should have a ranking of museums by best cafe, you know, that you need you need this access. Truly. I mean, yeah, we could call it like the Museum mm. Fatigue Diaries and just have all <laughs> the cafes in a ranking system that we invent. Definitely. Anyway, the the major uh, thing that happened in Seville was in 1649. So on top of all of this flood and plague and economic decline, there was a really major plague that came in 1649, and it killed 50% of the population. And that included some really... That is wild. That's so many people. Yeah, so many people. If you think it was 150,000 people lived in the city before then, and so it was just cut in half. And that included, so Francisco de Zurbaran, his son died during that plague. Zurbaran is a famous Spanish Baroque artist, and and his Mm -hmm. son was also a painter. He was a painter of still life art. And there are some of his paintings that are really beautiful, still in existence. He, he died during that plague. And then another man who was a sculptor, probably the most important sculptor of the age, called Juan Martinez Montañez, he also died. His, his other name is the God of Wood because he was so incredible at carving this wood. But it was a really cataclysmic event. Yeah. And Manara comes along. He, he joins the Hospital de la Caridad. And it's at this time when, when these hospitals really need you know, needs some funding, needs some charisma. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy to fix it. So he starts by building a new hospital and a new chapel for that hospital. And the chapel is what we're really going to be focusing about in terms of the artwork that he commissions for that chapel. 
But he also expands the remit of the hospital. So it's not just about burying the dead, because that's a rubbish job. It's also about caring for the sick Mm -hmm. and about looking after the sick and looking after the poor. And their aim, and I quote, was to care for any person who should come except women, end quote. Hey, so <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Don't forget so the time for were... in, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so they were really happy to care for any guy. He could be a criminal. He could, you know, have terrible skin condition that meant that you know, it'd smell really bad. Whatever. Yeah. The original bro code. This is awful. <laughs> yeah, but you couldn't care for women. I mean, it, it was a serious mm-hmm. problem at this time because there were all these charitable institutions that would look after men, but there was so little little support for women. I bet you we could look and find some sort of like resurgence of the cult of the Virgin Mary following this period or something. Because like probably like all of the women you know, died, and then suddenly they were like, <laughs> you don't need to look. The Immaculate Conception, you know, the idea that the Virgin is born without without original sin. Mm-hmm. Seville is obsessed with this at the time. I mean, oh. totally obsessed. They send envoys to Rome to try and convince the Pope to make it sort of official doctrine. And all of the churches are to the Virgin of the Immaculate Conception. They're obsessed, but they then don't care about actual women in plight. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Oh, of course not. That basically, say no more. I mean, if you say that that's your goal in life and your obsession is to prove that women are whatever. Anyway, moving on. Sorry, I'm going to go on a rant that I do not need to go on right now. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's it's a great rant because the next thing I want to talk about is, is why then, you know, does this club that Manyara kind of starts to lead becomes so mm-hmm. becomes so desirable to join, and everyone is joining. You know, the the most important aristocrats throughout Spain are sending in petitions. You know, the advisors to the king want to be part of this, and knights, and you know, everyone wants to be a part of this organization suddenly. And so the question is why? And a very a very convincing argument is that it ties in with what was going on more widely in Spain of this real crisis of masculinity. And I think Spain had had this whole generation of conquistadors and, you know, people who were who are finding new lands. There was also the history, the legacy of the knight, you know, the great knight on horseback who was chivalrous and all of these things. And yet men at the time were thought of as, and I'm using this word because it's the word they used, as effeminate. And as not having the kind of the grit that those old men of, you know, stories and myth and legend had. And you definitely can get a sense of this crisis of masculinity if you read the most famous book mm-hmm. written in Spanish at this time, which is Don Quixote. And Don Quixote is this story about a man who who wants to be a knight and who builds this whole crazy idea in his head of, of yeah. being a knight and goes off on these wacky adventures that go terribly wrong and it's and it's great but it's it's a big joke about how delusional he is essentially yeah exactly exactly and so and so this this crisis of masculinity is happening at the time and what Manyara does is he frames the act of charity as being equal to being a knight as being just as chivalrous as being you know just full of ideology like the modern day equivalent exactly exactly if you can if you can be charitable if you can be like Jesus was when he you know looked after the sick and all of these sorts of things you know, it, ma- it makes you a man, it makes you, you know, strong and, mm-hmm. and, all, and all that kind of stuff. So I think Manyara, he was really smart and he tapped into this, this feeling in people. 
And he gave them something to work towards, you know, something to aspire to. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about successful leaders is so much of it is timing. And so much of it is being in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you can catch people in the right state of, I don't know, apathy, dismay, just like defeated people are very easy to convince, control, Mm -hmm. manipulate, whatever you want to call it. There's obviously different levels of it. But first, there is usually a need for leadership. Like there is a group of people, there's a situation, something's happened that has like created a a breeding ground. Yeah. Yeah. For someone to step in and, you know, save or fix a situation. Completely. And certainly at this time, you know, you'd had all of this economic upheaval, you'd had this great plague and people were really looking for something to believe in and something to follow. 50% of the population gone. Exactly. That's traumatizing. And also a way that you can, you know, put your money to good. If you're incredibly wealthy, if you've made all of this money from the new world and from that trade, and Mm -hmm. yet you see the city that helped you build that, there's mass poverty, there's hunger, there's all of these things going around. Manyara comes along and says, look, I have a way that you can help with this. And that will also help you get into heaven. You know, let, let, let's remember that. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? I'm right? sure he had a wholesale pitch of all the benefits of why. Yeah. And, and I mean, at its core, it is, you know, good to want to be charitable and help people and to look at your community as yours and feel some sort of stake in that and like camaraderie I guess with your neighbors yeah yeah with your fellow man well certainly I mean this situation I think has brought out a lot of good in people you know in in this time everyone's trying to help everyone else with their shopping if they can't get out the house all of these sorts of things you know you want to help Mm -hmm. you know it's it's good to help but it also makes you feel good and I think at this time that was definitely playing into this. Yeah, people needed all of that, as we can understand. <laughs> exactly. I think this would be a good time. Take a little break, and we'll come back and keep talking about the church and our boy, Manyara. All right, we are back. Hope you enjoyed that message from our sponsor. And we're talking about the Hospital de la Caridad. Isabel, back to you. Yeah, so we were talking about Miguel Manara and what a charismatic guy he was and how he came on the scene and really rejuvenated this institution. And when he became the head of the Hospital de la Caridad, he set about rebuilding the chapel. In fact, the person before him had started to build this chapel, but then money had run out and it was really in a complete state of disrepair. And so he thought, okay, let's actually get this thing finished. Let's do it to the best of our abilities. And the best of his abilities was a lot of abilities because he had a lot of people who were giving him money to do this. And so he created this chapel, which was very lavish. And he got the three most important artists working in Seville at the time to contribute artworks to the chapel. And so... I want to talk a little bit about the layout of this chapel 
and about the scheme, because the scheme really reflects Manyara's ideals about the organization. And he was a great believer. He wasn't, he wasn't just this kind of charismatic charlatan. He was an incredibly strong believer in the good that the hospital was doing. And he wrote his rules into the very fabric of this chapel. So the three big artists that he got to work on this chapel were Bartolome Esteban Murillo, who is one that I would think that some people will have heard of. The other two, I'd be impressed if your listeners will know, but they were very important at the time. A man called Valdes Leal and a sculptor called Pedro Roldan. Now, Roldan is quite interesting because his daughter, Luisa Roldan, also became a very important and famous sculptor or sculptress, as uh, she's sometimes referred to. Um, And she was quite an important early female artist. You know, female artists don't often get very much say and there weren't very many of them that got large commissions but she was very successful and that's because she studied under her father Pedro Roldan who was also very successful. Yes common as we saw with Artemisia Gentileschi and I should be able to think of more off the top of my head but there are more. (laughs) Yeah there are lots though not as many as there should be and uh, Luisa Roldan she's also often called La Roldana. Beautiful. Just feminizing the surname so. (laughs) Yeah Hey, I like it. I like when female artists are kind of like raised to the level yeah, that male artists are so Mm. often. So it's fun. We were just talking on the Kathy Callwitz episode. They have a Mm. museum for her in Berlin and on their website. One of the things that they have right on the front is a sentence calling her like an autonomous genius, basically. Mm. And I was like, obviously, that's a very bold statement. But like, I love it because it doesn't happen very often when people talk about female artists. Mm. And well, exactly. Credit where credit's due. She was great. Yeah, no, she was great. Uh, As was Laurel Dana. Sadly, her work doesn't actually appear in the Hospital de la Caridad because she wasn't really. uh, She was on the scene then. Well, it was her dad who was getting the commission. Come on, to be expected. Yeah, <laughs> women aren't allowed inside exactly, and I'm sure exactly. their art is not welcome either <laughs> well but her dad did some great work so that the high altar is a scene of the entombment of Christ it's a sculptural scene in this massive architectural setting very classically Spanish gilded mm-hmm. architectural setting these Solomonic columns those are the twisted kind of so baroque. columns yeah exactly very baroque and Pedro Roldan does all the sculptures. And then Valdez Leal does some of the painting of the backdrop of these sculptures. Mm -hmm. And what that scene shows is the entombment of Christ, which should be unsurprising because the founding role of the Hospital de la Caridad was to bury people. And so it's kind of showing the Christian legacy or the forerunner of this. Totally. Smart branding. Yeah, exactly. And and what's quite interesting is when you look at these figures, they're really straining and there feels like there's a lot of of muscle Mm -hmm. being used there. Because, of course, so many of the people who would have been sitting in that chapel looking at this altarpiece every day for years on end would know what it was like to bury it dead body and would know what was needed to lift that and so it had to be realistic you know and actually uh, Valdez Leal and Murillo who did a lot of the paintings in the chapel both became members of the Hospital de la Caridad they probably actually did the paintings kind of on the cheap as a way of getting into to have membership okay. so so Smart. yeah Maniara was a savvy businessman he knew he could ask the best artists to do it um, and then just you know help them get the membership there you go so yeah, you have this, this huge altarpiece. And then Maniara commissions Murillo to paint six very large paintings, these monumental paintings. And they 
are all linked to ideas of mercy in Christianity. So both Old and New Testament mercy. So there's the very famous line from, from the Bible of, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And so all of these are listing the different acts of mercy. If you're going to be a good Christian, if you're going to be a good member of the Hospital de la Caridad, you want to do these things. And so what Murillo and Manyara, I'm sure they've sort of put their heads together and decided which New and Old Testament stories linked to these various acts. So, for example, for the hungry one, there's this incredible large scale painting of the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Is what it's also called. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back and talk about that in a bit, but I'll just run through the others quickly. So the thirsty, the one, the one giving people drink is the story of Moses, where he strikes the rock and suddenly water comes out of the rock. There's the stranger and you took me in is Abraham and the three angels. Now this painting, Abraham and the three angels, and actually the, the next three that I'm going to be talking about, they're not in the chapel anymore. And actually the, mm -hmm. the three angels is in Ottawa, in the National Gallery in Canada. Yeah. Uh -huh. Close. So uh, you, you can all go see that. I guess that's if, if you're listening from America, that's somewhat closer than coming to <laughs> coming to Spain. Yeah, maybe not right now. Yeah, but maybe in the next six months at some point. That's doable. When we're all allowed to to venture out again. Exactly. Yeah. The I was naked and you clothed me one is the return of the prodigal son. It's the story when he comes back and his father hands him clothes, mm -hmm. and that painting is in the US. It's in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. So very far from me, but <laughs> still here, technically. Still there. The I was sick and you visited me is Christ healing the paralytic. And that's in my National Gallery in London. I say mine, I own it. <laughs> but it's, it's the British National Gallery. If you guys are very nice to Izzy, then maybe she will uh, let you come maybe. to the National Gallery. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Send her puzzles and she'll think about it. Great. <laughs> And then the last one, which is visiting someone in prison, is the scene of Peter in prison. And that one is in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, which I have wanted to visit for a very, very long time. And so now I have another reason to add to my hundred other reasons to want to go, is that that painting is there. There you go. And the reason they're spread out so much is because when Napoleon invaded Spain during what was called the Peninsular War, one of his generals, this guy called Marshal Soult, he went down to Andalusia and particularly to Seville, and he took a whole bunch of art. He just sent his soldiers round, they took them all out of the churches that they were in, and he carried them off back to Paris with him. And rather than giving all of them to Napoleon, he kept a lot of them. And when they were sold, they got dispersed all over all over the world, as we see. They're in Russia and in the US and Canada and, and London. So, yeah, yeah. So Problematic on so many levels. <laughs> I know. There are some very poor reproductions of these paintings in the chapel. They're, they're OK, but I think they could be they could be better. So hopefully someone is going to give some money to the chapel and, and they can, you know, make some really good facts and leads to have there. But what is lucky is that the two really large panels, the panel of Miracle of the Loaves and Fishes and the one of Moses, they're still there and they've just been cleaned. So they were cleaned about a year ago to mark the 400th anniversary of Murillo's birth. And they look incredible. I went to see them and, and they hadn't been put high up on the walls yet. They were down at eye level. Oh, cool. And they were just totally transformed. So 
if any of you guys are looking up these paintings online you might see the old versions before restoration Mm -hmm. and hopefully we can share some of you know what what they look like now because yeah because it's they look absolutely incredible yeah yeah maybe we can even do before and afters because it's kind of amazing yeah and I know that restoration is a topic that a lot of people Mm. who are interested in art and art history are also interested in definitely obviously that's a whole subsect of yeah you know our field yeah is restoration no I I'm so fascinated by it and you know, when I was working a museum, I worked very closely with the conservators and it was just fascinating to see see the transformation and see all the techniques that are used to transform those paintings. And, and these mm-hmm. paintings came out really well because if you think the paintings hung up really high for however many hundreds of years, you know, 350 years in this case, it is getting covered in soot and covered in grime, mm-hmm. but the paint isn't actually getting damaged. Yeah. So the paint is beneath the varnish and so once it gets cleaned, once all of the muck and the varnish is taken off and new varnish is put on, you've got basically this pristine paint underneath. And it it's looked incredible. It looks really, really incredible. Best case scenario. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. I feel like so often when we hear about restoration stories, they're the opposite side of the coin where it's that people maybe didn't make the best decisions or exactly didn't respect the original art as much as some people would like and then it gets into this whole ethical thing and authenticity and it's very sticky and I don't have any answers (laughs) definitely I mean if painting has been kind of moving from hand to hand and being owned by a whole bunch of different people and if people love it then they want to restore it again you know in in history and they might and they might mess it up but if a painting's just been really high on a church wall and been forgotten for however long that actually gives it a reasonably good chance of of Mm -hmm. being in good nick you know when it's eventually comes down and and is cleaned good to hear so there you go A little bit, a little bit of a, a background on this painting. We talked about the clean paintings. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They're gorgeous. And actually, yeah, this this brings me to to a point. Whenever whenever I talk about Murillo, he's an artist that I really I really love. And he's an artist though that's so often thought of as being kind of cutesy and saccharine as a painter. A lot of people can bring to mind his paintings of street urchin children mm-hmm. and these very sort of cute little children with, you know, mud on their faces and, you know, dirty feet and they're playing games and looking like waifs on the street. Mm-hmm. And people think it's really um, romanticizing and not great. Whereas, I mean, I could go into a whole rant about how it's not really romanticizing, and, you know, but I'm not going to go to that. But what is one thing? <laughs> another time, another time. We'll do a full Mario episode where you can let it out. That's, that would be great. <laughs> but what's wonderful about these paintings in the Hospital de la Caridad is they really show Murillo's genius. They really show his brilliance as an artist, that it's not about creating this sort of romanticized world. It's actually about creating a world that is really real and really easy to empathize with. So particularly in these artworks, Manyara wanted you to aspire to be like these Old and New Testament individuals. And Murillo is perfect for that because he makes people, people look so real mm-hmm. and the actions they're doing seem like these real actions. And for me, my, my absolute favourite detail when I, when I saw these works when they were low down, it's in the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Mm-hmm. And this painting, if you imagine, it's very long and thin. It's got a really vertical prominence based on where it sits in the church, which is quite high up. And 
on the one side, you have the figure of Christ. He's kind of in the foreground with his disciples and they're handing out the loaves and the fishes of the miracle. And then it kind of goes off into the distance to see the crowds. And they're painted very sketchily and with this uh, sort of pastel colouring that makes it feel as though they're far away. But then, right on the other side of the painting, of this very long vertical painting, you have a group of figures where it's a young mother holding a baby over her shoulder and she's looking over at Christ, but the baby is looking behind the mum, mm-hmm. looking the other way to this elderly woman. And the elderly woman is looking back at the baby and kind of scowling at it. And then behind the two of them is this younger boy who I always imagine is the older brother of of this little baby and who's looking as if he's looking between the baby and the old woman to see what's going to happen. You know, he's sort of, uh, you know, see see how how this situation is going to end up. I remember seeing this for the first time and thinking, I bet Murillo saw that. Like he was sitting in a church pew and there was the mum on one pew and then in the pew behind there was an old woman who was annoyed that this baby was there or something. I don't know. But it feels very human. Yeah. You know, it feels very, very human and very intimate. And Murillo captures this so much. These are really paintings that you can kind of pour over and see so much detail in and so much care being given. In the Moses striking the rock as well, you have all these little little moments where you can just imagine what those figures were doing together. So there's a little girl lifting up a water jug for this older man to pour her some water because all these people have been very thirsty. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a young woman just looking back over her shoulder as she gets water and looking at this young man. It's like lo- star-crossed lovers or something. you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So it, it feels very human and very personal. And I think that gets at the heart of why Murillo is such an important artist and why, you know, he was so loved at the time that he was making art and for several centuries afterwards, because he was so brilliant at conveying story and message and narrative. And so he was copied hundreds and hundreds of times Mm -hmm. because of this art. So, you know, if I can do one thing (laughs) in this is to slightly shift people's view of Murillo. He wasn't just the kind of cutesy the cutesy painter that people think he was. He was a really, really powerful storyteller in his art. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean reduction of artists is something we should steer clear of in general. Mm. We talk about it a lot on the podcast in terms of it happening to female artists Mm. more than male, but like it definitely happens to male artists also. And don't put people in a box. None of this is that simple. Mm. You know, it's interesting you should say that because Murillo is often categorized as being quite a feminine painter, whatever that's Mm. meant to mean. Because he depicted children, I'm sure. So that's, yeah. Because, yeah, because he depicted children and because he paints i don't know emotion maybe he paints with a soft style yeah maybe it's the emotion anyway so it's interesting that that in our modern age has kind of been seen as derogatory whereas at the time it meant that he was the most you know most influential painter yeah painting (laughs) you know i i was i was just traveling in um in cuba of all places just before this this outbreak and every church I went into, there was some copy of a Murillo artwork. Wow. And the same thing in, in Mexico. I haven't been anywhere else in South or Central America, but certainly Murillo's legacy lives on, you know? Totally. Yeah, I love hearing that. And obviously those works are, not obviously, I guess, but I'm assuming they're more of the religious works than mm. like his street urchins, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if it's more of like a outside of the Latin culture and more of the English speaking world that's calling it feminine. The kind of Protestantism of, you know. Yeah, trying to call it. The, the not wanting to have emotions, the classic British thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know I, the people know. who get uncomfortable <laughs> when they see Latin men like kiss their children on the mouth and stuff, and they're just like <laughs> horrified and it's so uncomfortable and that kind of They're so not doing it right now. Don't spread germs, folks. <laughs> yeah, it's not right now. <laughs> not now. No, not good practice. But otherwise, it's good to show love to your fellow humans. Exactly. <laughs> Blow very affectionate kisses right now from six feet away. <laughs> there's yeah, there's definitely yeah different perspectives on masculinity in the two cultures. But I'm glad to hear that at least like throughout his life and into now. <laughs> yeah. In certain in certain places. In yeah. Latin speaking communities. He's appreciated for his artistic skill and and it's okay because in the sort of the in Europe and everything there's me I can keep preaching yes. I'll keep preaching the the greatness of Murillo and slowly people's minds will change carry your soapbox around your Maria soapbox we love it <laughs> <laughs> exactly um this is the only reason I wanted to come on this podcast is just <laughs> good reason it's a good reason yeah actually it is not the only reason because there's another great artist I want to talk about so so that is the other great painter did you like my segue I did that was great you're getting good at this I think you have like podcast talent (laughs) yeah so the other the other great painter who's in this church who uh, was commissioned to make artworks for this church is this gentleman called Valdez Leal and he made these two paintings that are as far from what Murillo was doing as you can possibly get. They are these very large scale memento mori. And memento mori mm-hmm. means literally remembering that you will die. And what these scenes look like, I mean, they, they might be the largest memento mori ever, <laughs> ever made uh, in the history of art. I'm sure there's some contemporary artist that has done some huge installation piece, but... But for the time, we'll give But credit. for the time, yeah. These are both very, very big canvases. And what they were called at the time, which I love, was hieroglyphics of death. Ooh. Isn't that amazing? So all of the hieroglyphics, you know, working out the meaning of all these objects. I just think that's such a great phrase. I'm going to call Dib for a band name. That would be a great band name. You know, that is, that is a great shout. Hieroglyphics of death. I, I wish I thought of that when I was a teenager and had so many terrible band names. <laughs> you know, if only. Yeah. Yeah, if only I was as nerdy. Actually, I was as nerdy an art historian. I just didn't happen to have this one piece of information. But yeah, hieroglyphs of death. I wonder if there's any heavy metal, future heavy metal stars listening. Exactly. If they are, write that down, little ones. Yeah. And then and then credit us. Or credit Miguel Manara. He, he he wrote it first. Just write us a song. Oh, yeah. Or yeah, write him a song. <laughs> it could be your first album. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, anyway. These... <laughs> A digression of all digressions. I'm sorry that was on me. Back to these words. No, I'm I'm loving it. It was it was such a great. I actually I'm really excited to talk about these. I'm glad that we are. <laughs> I'm I'm glad we're talking about them too. I'm glad I could introduce you to these incredible paintings. So the hieroglyphics of death. So there are two of them, and they hang above the doorways, the entrances to this chapel, the two different entrances. And so when you enter, 
you can see one of them on the wall ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And when you exit, you see the other one. And so they're constantly there. As yeah. you come into the church, you're reminded of death. As you leave the church, you're reminded of death. You know, we're always being reminded that it's right around the corner. <laughs> we are mortal and to dust we shall return and all that, uh, all that jazz. So the first one I want to talk about is called Finis Gloriae Mundi. And how's your Latin? Do you know what that means? It is horrible. I know Mundi is world. Mm-hmm. Finis, is that finish or end? Yeah, the end of. I, my Latin is terrible too. I only know this because I happen to know what it actually means. So don't worry. No, please. Go off though. This is the moment to flex. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I aesthetically love these yeah. two paintings. Yeah, yeah. Same. It means the end of worldly glory, is what this one means. And what it shows, it's just amazing. What it shows is at the bottom, you have these two corpses wrapped in you know skeletons uh, mm-hmm. that are in coffins yep and one of them is clearly a bishop he has a mitre's hat on he's holding a crozier mm-hmm. there's just so many details because even you know his his coffin was clearly lined with velvet and that velvet over time is kind of peeling away like moth holes and exactly exactly and then the other one is a knight so he's got this red cross which shows that he's part of a, a knightly order i think it might be the the knights of, of santiago but it could be another order actually scrap that it's definitely not because it's not the right cross for the knights of santiago but calatrava order the calatrava there you go it says it on the website i did not know that oh. i can't take credit <laughs> Great. So it's the the Calatrava order. Mm-hmm. I'm just proud of myself for knowing that it wasn't the Knights of Santiago. Yeah, no, you caught that. And I had not gotten to the place in the paragraph yet. You caught it all on your own. <laughs> Where credit is due. Yeah, so, so this guy is a knight. So you have these two skeletons of people who in life were really powerful. But they're reduced to skeletons, as we all will be. And then above them is a set of weighing scales, where on one side you have... Well, you have a bunch of objects and it says nimas, which means no more. So nimas. And all of the objects that are on that scale Mm -hmm. are things that are sinful. So you have a ram, you have... It's actually quite hard to see. Can you you see what else? Yeah, it looks a bit like... Is that a dog? Yeah. Let me see if I can get to... I have a... A ram's head, a boar's head, a dog, and... Yeah, and there's some sort of a heart with... Yeah, a heart with a bird on top yeah. on... What is that? Oh, it looks like a peacock. There's a big peacock with its feathers out. There you go. And then on the other side, you have what says nimenos, mm-hmm. which means no less. So it's no more or no less. And that's then covered in things that are good, that are, that are non-sinful. What's the opposite of non-sinful? <laughs> What's the opposite of sinful? Pious? Is that right? Pious. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> pious? I think so. Okay. Certainly if the object is a, a crucifix or the Bible, I think that's what these objects are. Yeah. Representations of piety, at least. Ex- exactly. Various goodies. Virtues. Virtues. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Virtues and vices. So that's what this scale is weighing up. And then there's a hand coming right from the top of the painting which is holding the scales and you can see that in the middle of the hand is a stigmata and that is the wound of Christ that's where the nail went through his hand to 
attach him to the cross. And so clearly it is Christ or God, I mean, three and one, you know, both. And he is holding these scales and weighing your soul. Yeah, it's such a cool work. And you're right, so much detail. It almost reminds me of the ambassadors where there's just like so much information to read all the way around. Mm. And when I first saw it, I was showing it to my boyfriend. I was like, look at this little cozy guy. (laughs) And for some reason, (laughs) obviously things, you know, have gone in a direction that he probably was not excited about. But as far as like visually it just looks like he's all cozied into his little coffin yeah is that the bishop yeah the bishop in particular yeah except I've got to say so I saw this painting usually it's hung really high up over the doors yeah but it was in at the Rijksmuseum recently for an exhibition I think it's the first time it had ever traveled outside of Spain yeah and it was there and it was hung low down and so it meant that you were basically on eye level with this bishop and my god is does he look rough I mean he has oh yeah like maggots coming out of his face he he's really the stuff of nightmares and I think that was the point you know it was meant to make people you know rethink their actions and say hey if you're gonna die tomorrow you're gonna end up being like this Mm -hmm. and you want to be remembered for the good stuff you know you want to be remembered for being a good a good person yeah yeah and you want your soul to be to be weighed well in the right direction for sure yeah and then actually just let's should we talk about the other one of these Valdez Leal Memento Mori I really want to because (laughs) this skeleton is just one of my favorite characters from any work of art ever that's I'm I'm so pleased I'm so pleased that I've converted you to Spanish you know baroque crazy crazy art so I've definitely studied this hospital before um, in my undergrad days yeah if my Italian and art history professor, Costanza Dopfell, is listening, <laughs> she would be fuming at me if I did not mention that I've definitely seen all these paintings. And- okay. Uh, okay. Fantastic. Okay. I am. It's just been a long time. But I have to ask is Tiger King as popular in the UK <laughs> as it has been here? Is it as big of a phenomenon? I thought you'd never ask. I knew this would bring up Tiger King. Um, I'm joking. <laughs> I have no idea how we got to talk about Tiger King right now. But yes, Tiger King is very popular here. It is it, just the most incredible show. And why? <laughs> yeah. What made you think Tiger King when you yeah. saw this? I know, I know. I honestly didn't until just now, but I love his little teeth, his like missing front teeth. Oh, of course, like the boyfriend character. Exactly, exactly. And he now, I just watched, they released yesterday, like a new episode where uh, Joe McHale interviews a bunch of them. And he has since gotten beautiful, like, or I think they're dentures that he wears now. Oh, okay. He has a very different face, but. That is what he looks like on the show. And he was one of my favorite characters. I felt very sorry for that man. And it yeah. sounds. Oh, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, I liked him too. That's, that's so funny. I'm ne- you know, you've ruined me now because I'm never going to be able to see this painting without thinking of I'm him. I'm sorry. It's totally him too. Even with a little like furrowed eyebrows, which is just brilliant. That they somehow. Yeah. And he looks kind of concerned. Yeah. Yeah. They somehow. I don't know how you make a skull look concerned, but this, this skull does. He did. Yeah. He did it. Okay. So now back to you though. This is just, <laughs> I mean, I thought if anyone who's listening to this is not like stopped to pull up images of these if they did not long ago yeah. but we'll post them we'll have them on our instagram 
and links to our website. Fantastic. They're so fun. (laughs) They're really, really fab. Yeah, so this is, you have a massive skeleton standing up. He's holding a scythe and he's also holding a coffin and a shawl. He actually looks like he's about to drop them, don't you think? He's holding a bit too much. Yeah, they look heavy. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know how he's doing that. But anyway, he's... Not to mention he's standing with one foot on a globe. So he's standing... (laughs) like on a rounded surface yeah it's, yeah it looks like this might be like the moment before he just falls <laughs> yeah and it just clatters into the other piles of piles of stuff that are next to him maybe that's how it all got there was he was just kept right. dropping things accidentally <laughs> and then he'll just become a pile of bones with all of it okay anyway so this work <laughs> is so full of objects that refer to time passing and to the temporary nature of the world. Yeah, so it's got an inscription there which says, in ikut oculi, which means in the blink of an eye. And so it's like all of these material objects pass in the blink of an eye. And so what you have here, just some details that I'm going to pick out, you have a Pope's tiara. That's not like a little delicate tiara. The Pope's tiara is like a huge mitre but then with extra added gold and filigree anyway you have one of them here you have very lavish jewels you have interestingly a book of architectural drawings which i think refers to the fact that architecture will crumble and die and all of your all of your earthly pursuits you know if you're if you're an architect or if you're wanting to build a great building it will crumble and that facade looks very similar to the facade of the chapel, of this particular chapel. I was thinking that. Yeah, so it looks very similar. And that's basically a way of of Manyara saying via Valdes Leal, but Miguel Manyara wanting to put this in there to say that even all of this work that he's doing to beautify this chapel, he knows that it is only temporary and that Mm -hmm. it will also crumble. You have armour, you have a suit of armour that's all over the floor. Can you see any other details you want to pick out? I mean, the globe again. Yeah, yeah. I've already talked about it, but just like as a symbol. Yeah, and I think globe almost certainly ties in with the exploration and the fact that Seville's wealth and a lot of the people who would have been brothers of this organization, their wealth would have come from the new world and from exploration and all of these different things and so I think that that's what that globe or one of the things that that will be referring to for sure and it's it's hard to tell from this image it's impossible for me to tell where on the globe his foot is Mm. landed but I'm assuming it's not just you know a happenstance spot I'm sure there yeah that whatever location he picked was intentional and has some messaging there yeah I definitely feel like I knew where it was on the globe, but also my my image now isn't high enough yeah. uh, in detail for me to be able to tell. But yeah. I neither. It kind of looks like clouds, but I know that's not <laughs> what <laughs> yeah definitely that wouldn't help much with navigation oh there was this cloud here once <laughs> no on the globe cloud uh, yeah cloud, exactly cloud continent i wonder if it's the sort of the north of, the north of africa or something and then you've got his foot is on where spain is i don't know but that would make sense mm-hmm. anyway so yeah it's just full of these details yeah 
Definitely. That all talk about the fact that materiality passes. And actually, Manyara wrote very eloquently on this point. He wrote a large book on his beliefs about charity and on, on the hospital and on its works. And he wrote, I'm going to quote him, Remember, man, that you are dust, and to dust you must return. This is the first truth that must reign in our hearts. Dust and ash, corruption and worms, burial and oblivion, everything passes away. Today we are, and tomorrow we are gone. Today people miss seeing us, and tomorrow we are wiped from their hearts. Wow. So yeah, I just found that very powerful. That is very powerful. And I think that that really speaks, yeah, I think that really speaks to to what these objects, what these paintings uh, are meant to be showing. They're meant to be the, the visual embodiment of his mm-hmm. writing and, and his ideas. And I think undoubtedly Manyara was totally involved in the design and the creation of everything to do with this chapel. And so his his message about what the hospital should be doing and, and its work was, you know, really at the heart of that. Mm-hmm. And also part of this, it made me think a little bit about the performativity of charity, because, you know, even even now people give to charity to look as though they're giving to charity, you know, to be seen to be doing it. Um, And I think that it's very easy for us to sort of dismiss a lot of historical charitable work when we think it's so tied up in wanting to get into heaven. You know, that idea of paying your way into heaven by giving some money and doing some good deeds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could see the Hospital de la Caridad with all of its very wealthy patrons as this being their way of getting into heaven. But I think the the more I read about the work that they were doing and the history of the work they were doing, it you know, if it's very real, you know, it's, yeah. it's serious caring for the sick. Yeah, it's not a made up charity. Like, you know, they are appealing to the fact that everyone mm. can get sick and die yeah. at any time. And so yeah, that's not necessarily the same as I think, when you were talking about charity and kind of like, the idea of doing charity for show and that's always going to exist in every any capacity of course somewhere but I think that if the actual charity itself is focused on a cause and and is seen to be executing that cause yeah yeah people die then, then that's great I mean, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, a lot of the very wealthy aristocrats that come into the hospital, they'd do their shift and then they'd go back to their homes, these incredibly lavish palaces. Mm-hmm. So they'd do their shifts, they'd work their time, and then they'd go back to their really lavish palaces and sleep in their, you know, gold brocade bed with these, uh, you know, furs and all of this kind of wealth around mm-hmm. them. But then there were people like Manyara who gave up all of that wealth, put it all into the charity and ended up living in these two rooms on the upper floor of the hospitals that he had built, that he had collected money to build. And Manyara was really seen, you know, he would go and he would treat the most, say, repulsive sick, you know, the the ones that had, you know, that everyone else wouldn't want to go near. And he wrote about this. He wrote that, you know, you have to repress your, you know, instinctive, urge not to want to touch someone who has like oozing sores and things like that but he would go and he would really work with these people and try and care for these people in a time when there wasn't you know a medical pill that they could give him give give them and just heal them it was more about the you know the palliative care showing that you cared and 
doing what you could for these people. And so he was he was very passionate. Yeah, sounds like a lot more yeah. empathy. It's like a lot of what's happening and needed. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think yeah, he did he did a great job and from from the moment that he died, I think a lot of people were trying to get him to be canonized. You know, talking about that. That's that's not really talked about very much anymore. Because, you know, there are always these people who there are campaigns to try and get them to be made a saint. But Miguel Manara never never got that or hasn't yet been made a saint. But certainly in his time. Yeah, 21st century, it might be a hard sell because I don't think there are probably that many <laughs> women who were advocating to yeah, become a saint. Yeah. So now that people actually care what women think, it might be hard. As time well, I mean, there are a lot of saints that weren't that great to women. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, but it, it happened back yeah. far enough when women didn't really have a say. You, you know, you'd be surprised. Yeah, I probably would. <laughs> or not. Because you're in California right now, and you, San, this saint mm-hmm. called San Junipero Serra, he was very recently canonized, you know, within the last decade, I think. Dang. And he was the guy who came to California and set up all of these missions around California, San Francisco, oh, yeah. San Diego, yep. all of these different ones. Uh, and, um, yep. and there's a lot of debate about whether he was, you know, good or not to Native Americans who were there. Oh, I'm sure he was <laughs> horrible. I'm just gonna, like, I'm sure, allegedly, whatever, I, you know, I guess we don't know, but I'm gonna assume he yeah. was not great you know, based I, on the history. Yeah. So I think he was not he was not great by our standards. There is an argument that he was better than most. But that is mm-hmm. not saying very much because most were oh, absolutely yeah, exactly. awful. So if you know, it's yeah. where's the bar here? It's probably very low. <laughs> yeah, I think there was quite a lot of when he was uh, canonized, there was quite a lot of debate around that. So so it's still happening, you know. Yeah, not not surprisingly. Um, voices are still not being heard. There's still a lot of people out there with beliefs that I personally think are outdated. But, you know, that's not for me to judge people or anything. (laughs) I'm not going to do that here. We just just judge art. That's that's our our safe zone where we can can judge art. And, you know, people can disagree with us. But we uh... earn the degrees to be able to judge art. We earn that right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone can judge art. Yeah. No, definitely. And anyone can. And, you know, the more you judge it, the more you learn and, you know, build, build our knowledge. But it is, a, yeah, it's an important point that, you know, misogyny existed and exists. <laughs> and will continue to exist in the future, sadly. And you can't throw out every historical figure and artwork that is related to it or we would have pretty much none left so I, I think it's fine to talk about Minyara for the good that he did and the people that he cared for and he definitely exactly and you know clearly he he opposed women being in this particular hospital but there were hospitals for women in Seville so mm-hmm. we don't know if he supported them in their own you just don't know I, I expect he didn't yeah but you just can't tell and he can be celebrated for what good he did and no one's perfect and you know Listen, everyone has to have their little cause here I because I do feel bad that I've been kind of ripping on him for this so just to <laughs> kind of you know show that I understand my grandmother was not allowed to go to a, a high school when she was like first oh, wow. she had first moved from Mexico to the U.S. 
and yeah her father didn't want her her sisters going to school with boys and was like absolutely not so it also could have just been societal that that was a it was more separate at the time and it's not that he thought women didn't deserve care but he just felt that that wasn't his job it was someone else's job to take care of so we don't necessarily know his personal beliefs on women if there is writing out there that someone wants to send us then maybe exactly and and it's always gets a bit sticky when you start to look at history through modern exactly our modern sense of morality and you know if if Manyara looked at us now I think he wouldn't agree with the way that we live our lives either he wouldn't think that we are morally you know superior oh no I have a lot of issues so I think you know this is this is one of the many fascinating things that history and studying history and studying art brings up and brings into the conversation are these ideas around how our views shift and how we can view others. And I think studying history has certainly made me a lot more open and a lot more questioning and, you know, a lot more empathetic to people in very different, with very different beliefs and situations to me. And so I think we can all do with a little bit more open-mindedness. Oh, a thousand percent. Although my open-mindedness definitely stops somewhere. <laughs> and it definitely stops at, at like serious, you know, it's a misogyny. But yeah, <laughs> I think that's fair. I, exactly. I think for people who talk about open-mindedness and the virtues of it, I feel like that comes with the automatic disclaimer that it does not include prejudice <laughs> or like bigotry of any kind you know exactly. all all of those people are left out <laughs> they don't get they don't get a vote <laughs> or a seat in the room but everyone else yeah. you know as long as you're not hating on other people yeah but anyway back to <laughs> art <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so it's just really important to remember all of the good work that Manyara did and even to this day you know the Hospital de la Caridad is still working as an institution that cares for the poor and the sick not to the same extent now because there are larger hospitals of course in Seville but they're still they're still doing that work and that has a legacy all the way back in the 17th century. It's pretty amazing. Yeah and yeah just to tie it back to what we were saying at the very beginning of the episode thank you to all the healthcare workers out there right now uh, on the front lines working very hard first responders also but um, we really appreciate you and I'm just going to go ahead and include essential workers in general anyone who has to work right now yeah yeah, everyone's doing uh, such important work and, you know, really keeping keeping the world moving when we're all, all, all we can do is just stay indoors and do our bit. But it's, yeah, thank you. Thank you to all of the, uh, for me, it's all the NHS staff. Uh, the NHS is our national health service in England. I know that in America, you have great hospitals too. Yeah. So it's great that, that everyone's, everyone's doing their bit and and particularly for those workers. Yeah, we appreciate you always, but especially in times like these. And yeah, it's fun to look back at historic institutions that yeah have really stepped up when we needed them. So we are going to continue the conversation in a part two episode because we have a lot to say. Um, So (laughs) just wanted to let you guys know to catch us on that episode for a continued conversation. Anything else before we wrap up? Yeah, no, looking forward to looking forward to our next chat. The next uh, the next artwork, the next hospital we're going to be talking about is is just as exciting as this one. So I uh, can't wait to yeah. chat with you about that. Stay tuned. We'll leave it as like a little bit of a teaser so people mm. have to wait to find out. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. We are history, babe.